Amanda. And I'm Kristen. And, and we, we are, are the Extra Sisters. Sisters. So sit back, relax, and let's get creepy. Welcome back to another haunted happy hour. And also happy October. Woo, spooky month. We have finally gotten to the point of the year where like, I feel like seasonal depression is opposite for me, you know? Yes. Like, I hate summer. Agreed. It's hot, sticky, sweaty. I am just not about it at all. I hate it. Yeah, but I hate winter also. Like, I don't want to drive in the snow. It's too cold. But that fall and springtime, perfect. You get like a little pocket, you know, right before yeah. winter. Right in between summer and winter when it's like the clouds open up. Well, they don't because it gets like overcast. But you know what I mean? Like <laughs> the weather is beautiful. The leaves are falling. The spooky mm-hmm. de- decorations are out. The movies are on. The candles are pumpkin. Like it's great. Yes, I have finally been getting back into my, I want to watch horror movies all the time and pop popcorn and do all that. Yes, like I don't like pumpkin spice flavor very much, but the candles, oh my God. Oh my God, yes. They have this new one at Bath and Body Works. I think it's pumpkin bonfire or something. Oh my God, it's my new favorite. Dude, I sent you one recently and I was like, bitch, this is my new one. (laughs) And it's called White Pumpkin Oakwood. Oh Mm. my gosh. It is so good. Y'all need to get your asses to Bath and Body Works and go smell it. (laughs) And just think about that's what's going in my house all the time right now. It smells so fucking good. But there's a lot like just everything from Bath and Body Works for the fall just hits Mm -hmm. for me. Most of them. The only thing is that's like really throwing off my fall game is I'm a salted caramel mocha bitch and there's been a national toffee nut shortage at Starbucks. Yeah. What is up with Starbucks? Is that ever going to get cleared up? Come on. I, I don't know. Like you can get toffee nut syrup that's not at Starbucks. Like you can go on Amazon and just get toffee nut syrup, but I can't just go to Starbucks and get my fall drink. And so they replaced it with like the apple whatever that apple drink is, but I don't like apple cider drinks that much unless I'm like putting alcohol in them, you know? It's fair, especially because I got the apple filling in a hot chocolate once and it tasted good, but it has apple pieces in it and I feel like that's kind of gross. I think you can get it without those because I like the strawberry acai refresher, but I get it without the strawberries. So mm-hmm. you could probably ask them to not put that in there, but yeah, I just, so that's really like, I don't know what to get at Starbucks now because the, my backup to that is the refreshers and that's a very summer drink to me yeah so now I go to Starbucks and I'm like the caramel like I don't know plus like not everything is vegan and so Mm -hmm. I try as best I can to be dairy-free most of the time so like I can modify the mocha the salted caramel mocha to be vegan most of the time so like the toffee nut I just usually get a toffee nut mocha with the salt on it and and there's no toffee nut and it's very Mm -hmm. Is making me sad. But for the most part, it's been nice. I'm the so it's my first fall in this new neighborhood. And we were the only ones to put up like extravagant Halloween decorations. And it doesn't say anything in my HOA bylaws that I can't, but I'm still kind of waiting for someone mm-hmm. to be like, okay, Satanist. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. That's what I told Connor. He was like, see, her HOA lets it. And I was like, just wait. They may be coming for her. I will fight it tooth and nail, though, because I read every page of my HOA. Like, before we closed, like, right when we moved in, I was like, the first thing I told Brad we needed to look for was holiday 
decoration guidelines because mm-hmm. for both Halloween and Christmas, I like mm-hmm. to put stuff outside, lights and you know, just general decor. And so right now I have like a giant spider web that goes from my roof all the way down to my yard. And like, I have all these spider lights and projectors and inflatables out and all these like eyeball stakes in the ground and a phantom hanging from my porch. And so, you know, nobody else has anything out. And granted, I put mine up like at the very end of September. So maybe when it gets a little bit closer to Halloween, things will start Mm -hmm. popping up. So I'm hoping, cause you know, like in these I'm not gonna lie, I moved to kind of like a bougie-ish neighborhood. So like, I'm kind of hoping that these people will like get with it. Because when we the first time we looked for a house, we looked right around Halloween. And a lot of neighborhoods did do stuff. But I'm kind of hoping these people will get on board. But I'm also kind of scared I moved into one of those neighborhoods. It's like too good for anything except for Christmas, you know, where like mm-hmm. Jesus. So I don't know. But um, I'm willing to take this to the board and be like... <laughs> If it doesn't say it, tell me where I can't. Right. So I will go down. And now if they change the bylaws because of me, I will be so salty. (laughs) I'm ready. I'll pick it with you. Thank you. But at the (laughs) same time, I'm sure there are some people in the neighborhood that are like, oh, neat. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, right. Maybe I'm setting some sort of like, okay, well, they did it. So let's do it. You know what I mean? Maybe. I mean, I think with Halloween, I'll just get over it. But yeah, I think I would probably be one of those of, well, nobody else is doing it. I don't really want to put anything out. So maybe. They're not stealing my joy. Right. Like, I want, and like, this is just me testing the waters. Like, once I kind of feel out the neighborhood and I'm not the newbie anymore, mm-hmm. I want to go scarier. Like, this is cutesy. Yes. I want to be the house where, like, the kids are scared to go in the garage to get the candy. Yes. Do you have a lot of kids in your neighborhood? Like, do you think you're going to get a lot of trick-or-treaters? I think so because I see a lot of families, like, riding bikes and, you know, at least – I'm sure I'll at least get, like, a little – probably at least a dozen, but I'm thinking probably more – but we'll see. I'm, we're going to actually tally how many kids we get this year because my husband wants to be the full bar house next year. And you can't Smart. just, yeah, you can't just go buy full bars right yeah. off the bat because if you underbuy, that sucks. But if you overbuy, it's very expensive. Uh huh. So we're going to tally up the kids this year on a little whiteboard and just see kind of <laughs> what the neighborhood looks like because I, I, I do want to be the Halloween house. I want, that's what I want to be known for. So we had to start out very like, cutesy and then I'll build on top of that once I can kind of gauge the neighborhood you know agreed I want to be one of those that like makes the kids with their pants <laughs> yeah like a good like you know if I see little kids that don't want to come up I'll go out to them but then when I see right. the kids like I want to have you know because there was a street when I grew up that like or a couple houses, they would have like fog machines and like they would make scarecrows and put like Michael masks on them and stuff. And you did not want to go in there, but like you were gonna and then you ran out screaming, but they <laughs> gave you a fuck ton of candy for doing it. Yeah. And it was good candy. You know what I mean? Yeah. You didn't I get like that. the kitty mix with the Tootsie Rolls. No, no. You got like full bars. <laughs> they made it worth the scare. That's what I want to do. Exactly. So Yep. We'll see how it goes, but wish us luck because I have big dreams of like animatronics and fog machines and a soundtrack. So yeah. 
Yeah. We want the haunted house garage. Anyways, that's not why we're here. Have we even said what we're doing today? I don't know. We have not, I don't think. Oh, well, today we're going to talk about abandoned towns or ghost towns. And I thought about this one because I went to Texas in August and I was driving back and there were just so many towns that like maybe had people in them, but also like the buildings had just like fallen in on themselves and hadn't been touched. And I drive to Texas fairly often enough where I just see that I've seen them year after year after year. And I'm like, okay, so just nobody's touching these. Like, yeah, I always wonder about that too, especially in Colorado in the mountains, like you'll see just a random cabin that's just there and it's falling apart. And I always wonder about the stories and then like who built it, how long it was around, what happened in it. I may have told this story before. This isn't a town, but this is just a house. When I was growing up on the, at the end of my street, which my street was like several miles long because we lived in a city, but we kind of lived, we lived out of the city limits and kind of on the more country-ish edge of the city. And everyone had at least a couple acres, maybe, you know, up to 10. Some people had like 20. It just kind of depended. We only had like three and a half, but you know, everyone was really spread out. And at the end of the street, there was a house and a barn and a shed and it hadn't been lived in for decades. But the man that abandoned the house took immaculate care of the garden. Mm -hmm. And he was in his eighties. He's passed away, unfortunately at this point, but his, his name was Mr. Neal and his flowers were always gorgeous. I mean, like if you had just looked at the yard, like you would think that this house would be like pristine, but it was dilapidated falling in on itself. It was like just an old wood house that you would think would have been built, you know, early 1900s type shit. Right. Mm -hmm. My friend Annie and I, we went in there one time and this family literally just picked up and left one day and never went back inside that house. And when I tell you like jars on the kitchen cabinet and there was a piano and like their living room furniture, the bed sheets pulled back, the cap off the toothpaste, toothbrushes, like everything as it was and had just been warped by like wind, rain, time. It was like, you know, time had stood still, but had just broken everything down. It was the most creepy. So yeah, it was the most surreal experience and it was so scary but also there were so many rumors about why and I I'd have to ask Annie because Annie's family was actually really close to this gentleman and Annie and her sister would actually go and spend time with him because his wife and child had passed on his son and there were and I don't want to do a disservice to his family's story especially knowing that you know my friends were so close to him but you know at the time when we were kids there were rumors that like you know, something had happened to his child and that he had taken his own life and then they just couldn't stand it anymore. So they just left. And I, you know, I think that there's some sort of truth to something along those lines, but they did really just pick up and leave and never went back except for he, he did take care of the garden and he never sold the, the land. That's crazy. Yeah. And when he died, his estate did pass and they'd have bulldozed the the house and the barn and everything. So that's no longer there, but we went into it and we shouldn't have because it was very dangerous, but it was, I'm glad I got to see it, but it was mm-hmm. wild. And that's kind of how these towns that I, you know, you drive through in these rural areas and these mountain towns, it's like 
they just up and left. Mm-hmm. Especially, like, I love going on the Pikes Peak Cog Railway, and it's a train that goes up to the type, top of Pikes Peak, and you'll occasionally see, like, off to the side over a creek, there's, like, a cabin that's falling apart, and I'm like, how? What were you doing? Why there? It's so fascinating. Yeah, especially up there. Mm-hmm. Like, to build it up there in the first place. Right, exactly. It's crazy. So some of mine, I kind of focused like a little bit on what really fascinates me with these are, yeah, like people just up and leave things. Like everyone knows about Roanoke, you know, Mm -hmm. like what the fuck happened at Roanoke? We don't know. Mm -hmm. Just, I mean, American Horror Story did a whole thing on it, but obviously that's (laughs) not true, you know, but there's a lot of things that happen that cause towns to be abandoned and never return and a really big one that I think most everybody knows about is the disaster at Chernobyl Mm -hmm. and that's something like I think that is so popular to visit but like you don't think of it as like a vacation touristy spot but it really is because people like morbid curiosity is definitely real Mm -hmm. which is why you have like ghost towns and things like that, that people go to, but there's this town in Ukraine that is abandoned because of Chernobyl and Ukrainian cities are really hard to say, but it's like Pripyat, something like that. Mm -hmm. And so what happened was if you don't know Chernobyl, but on April 26, 1986, during a test to see how much power was needed to keep the number four reactor operating in the event of a blackout, the number four reactor of Chernobyl nuclear station exploded, causing fire, which led to the following days of like huge damage, obviously releasing extremely dangerous amounts of radioactive chemicals into the air, which over time contaminated millions of square miles in dozens of European nations. The IAEA estimates that approximately 30 people were killed by the initial explosion and related radiation exposure, which several thousand additional deaths due to higher cancer incidents could be possible were possible over the long term, which I'm sure like kind of like the bombing in Japan. There was like an initial call, you know, blast killed a bunch of people and then a ton of people died, you know, Mm -hmm. from radiation exposure. The town closest to the number four reactor was Pripyat, a city of 49,000 people founded in 1970 to house workers from Chernobyl. It had 15 primary schools, a large hospital, 25 stores, 10 gyms, along with parks, cinemas, factories, a pool and amusement park, and other marks of a thriving community. Because of the people who lived there, it was one of the most beautiful and luxurious cities in the Soviet Union. Only about three kilometers from the explosion, the entire city was forced to completely evacuate on April 27th in just three hours. It was possible only because the scenario was part of the building plans of the plant, which is smart. But also, like, I'm not saying it's anybody's fault. Like, yes, people have to work there and have to live there. But that's got to be just, like, so scary to just Mm -hmm. live right there. Like, my brother-in-law actually works at a nuclear reactor site in... Washington state. And I'm like, "Mm, no, thanks. (laughs) No, thank you. Over three decades later, the ghost town is a freeze frame of the Soviet union in 1986. Communist propaganda still hangs on the walls, personal belongings, litter the streets and abandoned buildings. The hammer and sickle decorate lampposts awaiting May day celebrations that never took place. 
Toys are strewn about a schoolhouse where they were last dropped by children who are now fully grown. All clocks are frozen at 11.55, the moment that the electricity was cut. Despite the common information, the city was never completely abandoned. Military, police, scientists, and other public authorities used the city as a base to clean radiation in the newly created zone of alienation. The famous pool was in service until 1996. There is still electricity in some parts of the city, and to this day there is a functional vehicle base in the city. Water supply for the plant and in the former laundry, there are still laundry after 30 years where the uniforms of plants workers are washed. In the same building, there is building triangle radiation danger signs are made. Ironically, the absence of humans has been excellent for wildlife. Which, yeah, I mean, clearly. Yeah, that's not our... Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, obviously. <laughs> yeah. In 1986, wildlife was not doing well in Chernobyl, outcompeted out for resources by pine and dairy farms. And after people left, the deer and boar populations returned almost immediately, despite having radiation levels thousands of times higher than normal. They were not showing obvious signs of mutation. And the animal populations grew enormously. After elk, moose, deer, and boar returned, so did their predators, the wolves, and lynx. Today, animal populations more closely resemble that of a national park than a radioactive contamination zone. As it turns out, from the animal's point of view, a nuclear disaster is preferable to normal human habitation. To yeah. tour this, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, just nuke us all, and then yeah, the planet will right. return to normal. <laughs> To tour the city, Chernobyl, and other surrounding villages, one must first obtain a day pass from the government. These passes can be obtained through the touring companies, about 110 kilometers from the blast site. There are five well-known tour agencies that take visitors to the city. However, due to the lack of repair, the buildings and other structures in the town are becoming increasingly dilapidated. Because of this, many tour companies will not allow visitors into the buildings themselves. Other than the crumbling buildings, safety is not a major concern. It takes between 300 and 500... Wow, I don't know that word. Rottengen per hour of radiation to deliver a lethal dose. I should know that word, but I don't. <laughs> Levels on the tour range from 15 to several hundred micro rottengens per hour. All tours end with screening for radiation levels. Already Interesting. And also, yeah, right. fuck that. That's why I won't go. <laughs> Dude, but it would be so interesting. Like, God, I think it would just, like the feeling that you would get. And that's why this is so all these like abandoned things are so interesting to me. Just like the, the feeling that you would get like frozen in time has got to be so like, like creepy, but also just so like, I don't even know how to explain it. Just weird. Yeah. But there's much easier things to do with than radiation. And they're also abandoned towns. So you right. Yeah. Yep. And the, currently the city is beginning to be swallowed up by the surrounding forest and it will soon be completely overgrown. Yeah. I mean, Chernobyl's also just incredibly interesting. Like aside from like, you know, the TV shows and like all the like, you know, supernatural bullshit that people talk about, like just the fact that that happened and like the toys and like the communist propaganda and just everything that like you could literally, it's almost like a museum to time. Mm -hmm. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, you don't get to see that very often. Yeah, there is an island in Japan, I think. I know it's an Asian country, but there's an island there that it's basically the same. That it was this thriving town and they just up and left one day. And you you can visit, I think you can visit it, but don't have to deal with radiation. But it is kind of like a time capsule as well. Like, you get to see toys and stuff just laying about and things like that. That's pretty cool. That is so wild to me. I would love that. Mm-hmm. So the first one I have is 
close to home, which is kind of nice. So that's why I decided to do this one. And this is in St. Elmo, Colorado. St. Elmo, Colorado, a former gold mining camp 20 miles southwest of Buena Vista. Today, it is one of the best preserved ghost towns in Colorado. The area was originally settled in 1878 and was made official in 1880 when gold and silver began to bring many people to the area. Though the settlement was first called Forest City, the small town's name was changed when the post office objected because there were too many towns with the same name. If only they would do that with Springfield. The new name was derived by Griffith Evans, one of the founders, who was reading a romantic 19th century novel by the same name. Beginning with a high moral character, the settlement went the way of other booming mining towns, reaching a population of more than 2,000 and taking on all the trappings of a single male population with saloons, dance halls, and body houses. When the Alpine Tunnel was under construction, St. Elmo became the scene of raunchy Saturday night sprees. That sounds like my kind of place. Sorry. <laughs> I know, right? Like, I want this town I want to visit. In 1881, the Denver, South Park, and Pacific Railroad came through the area, and a station was built in St. Elmo. From here, the tracks continued to Romley, Hancock, and through the historic Alpine Tunnel. St. Elmo was considered the main source of supplies arriving by train for the area settlers, and eventually the town boasted smelting works, several merchandise stores, five hotels, a telegraph office, a town hall, five restaurants, two sawmills, a schoolhouse, a weekly newspaper called The Mountaineer, and numerous saloons and dance halls. The miners worked at several mines throughout the area that were rich in silver and gold, copper and iron. The Murphy Mine, situated high up on the mountain, some 2,000 feet above the railroad, was the largest and most successful, shipping as much as 50 to 75 tons of ore per day. In 1881, Anton Stark, a cattleman, brought a herd to the railroad and was so taken by the town that he and his family quickly took up residence. Anton became a section boss for one of the local mines, and his wife Anna ran a general store and the Home Comfort Hotel which later became home to the post office and telegraph office. Anton and Anna raised three children, Tony, Roy, and Annabelle, who worked in the hotel and the store. The hotel was said to have been the cleanest in town, the meals the best, and the supplies of the store more plentiful than the other establishments. The Stark family was part of St. Elmo's elite, a high-class group that attended church regularly. Anna was said to have been a humorless woman who severely controlled her children, believing that they were better than the other townsfolk. The children were rarely allowed to leave home and were forbidden to attend local dances or social activities. In the end, they had only each other for company. In 1890, a fire destroyed the business section and the town was never entirely rebuilt. This was about the same time that St. Elmo's peaked in population with about 2,000 residents. Afterward, many of the mines were depleted and many of the miners moved out of the area. The railroad continued to run until 1922, and it has been said that the last of St. Elmo's population rode the last train out of town never to return. For many years, Roy and Tony Stark tried to influence developers into reopening the mines, but when they were unsuccessful, they turned to tourism leasing the empty cabins to vacationers and continuing to run the general store. After Anton Stark's death, Anna realized that the tourism trade was not providing for the family and sent Annabelle to work in a telegraph office in Salida. The lonely and attractive girl was finally able to escape the prison that her mother had made for her in St. Elmo. Before long, she met a young man named Ward, and in 1922 they married, sending a telegram to her family that they were moving to Trinidad. 
Though no one seems to know why the marriage didn't work, just two short years later, she returned to St. Elmo, where she spent the rest of her life. In 1925, the Mary Murphy Mine, the principal gold mine of the Chalk Creek Mining District, closed. In 1926, the railroad tracks were torn up and the railroad grade became a road from north up to St. Elmo. But the Stark family stayed, leaving St. Elmo would thrive again, buying up property at tax sales. The three eccentric Stark children, along with their mother, maintained their existence by continuing to run the general store and rent cabins to tourists, though the general condition of the town deteriorated. By 1930, the population of St. Elmo had dwindled down to only seven. In 1934, Roy Stark passed away, and his mother Anna died a short time later. The only residents left were Annabelle and Tony, who lived in the dead town without indoor plumbing or electricity. Rarely bathing or changing clothes, they neglected the old hotel, letting the place pile with trash and discarded items, but continued to run the home comfort store. The store, said to have been sour-smelling, contained faded tins of outdated food and stale tobacco. Though Annabelle was always said to have been kind and generous to the few who still frequented the store, the locals began to call her Dirty Annie because of her filthy clothing and tangled hair. Oh, that's sad. (laughs) She's probably depressed, honestly. They just didn't acknowledge that back then. Right, exactly. She was also known to have roamed the town with rifle in hand to protect her property. The town officially died on September 30th, 1952, when the post office closed. Eventually, Tony and Annabelle were sent away to a mental mental institution for their own safety and that of others. However, after just a few weeks, a sympathetic friend convinced the authorities that they were of no harm to anyone and they were released. Tony died a short time later and Annabelle was sent to a nursing home in 1958, where she died in 1960. Their property was left to the sympathetic friend who had helped them. Afterward, the survival of the town was largely due to the Stark family and their descendants, who remained the sole year-round residents for many years. According to local legend, perhaps at least one of them, Annabelle Stark, still keeps a ghostly watch over the town. Shortly after Annabelle's death, the friend's grandchildren were said to have been playing in a room of the hotel when suddenly all the doors in the room slammed shut and the temperature dropped nearly 20 degrees. The terrified children refused to play in the hotel again. Another one of the grandchildren, a young woman in her 20s, decided to take on the hotel as a project, cleaning out the rooms, making minor repairs, and washing down the walls and floors. After cleaning up for the day, she and her friends would put away their tools and cleaning supplies, only to find them in the middle of the floor when they returned the next day. After this continued to occur, they started placing the items in a padlock closet, but still, they would be in the middle of the floor when they came back. On another occasion, a skier was said to have seen an attractive woman in a white dress framed in the second-story window of the hotel. The owner was away on vacation, so who could it have been? The young woman's eyes were focused on something in the distance, and when the skier followed her gaze, she saw a group of snowmobilers who were riding through the street. The skier flagged down the group, informing them that snowmobiling was illegal in St. Elmo. The group apologized and rode away. When the skier looked back at the hotel, the woman nodded to her, then turned away and vanished. The legend of Annabelle's ghost lives on with the part-time residents of St. Elmo, believing that she continues to protect her property from vandals and trespassers. And snowmobilers. <laughs> exactly. I'm looking at pictures of it, and it's really cool. Like, it's I sad that it went ghostly. It. It's a beautiful town. Like, I'm looking at pictures of it in the fall, and like, god damn. Because it's at like almost 10,000 feet, so you mm-hmm. know, like, it's just beautiful yeah now which one's the hotel (laughs) 
I mean, I it's know. not that far. Yeah, and you can still visit. They were saying that occasionally, I think it's in the summer, they have the hotel and the general store still open for you. Dude, let's go. I know, right? That's cool. Did you know about it before this? I had heard about it a couple times just because I like spooky things, but I had never really looked into it. So I'm glad I got to look into it this time. Oh, yeah. That is neat. That is neat. I like close, close ghost towns. We have this ghost town museum here, but it's super lame. I haven't even gone. Literally, I lived here my whole life. Never gone. I mean, I'm sure they have interesting stuff, but like the little ghost town is just like a little like. Like it's not a ghost town. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't look like one from the side of the road. So no, 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 it's not. Ordau sur Glane or Ordau sur Glane. It's French. I don't know. I'm sorry. (laughs) Good try. Thank you. (laughs) It's a village in South Central France. And it, well, it was. This is real sad. Okay, so just going to throw this out there. Yeah, it was lost during World War II because it was the site of a brutal atrocity committed during World War II. The entire village was destroyed and its inhabitants killed by German troops on June 10th, 1944, exactly two years after the basically the same thing happened to the Czechoslovakian village of Lidis. Lidis. In reprisal for resistance attacks, an SS detachment of 200 men routed all 652 inhabitants from their homes and into the village square. So I'm going to give a trigger warning for this story. It is super, it's, it's super rough. Okay. A search for hidden explosives and an identity check were announced and the people were herded off. The men into barns and the women and children into the church. The troops then barred the doors of the barns and the church and with dynamite, and incendiary devices, they set fire to the entire village. Anyone not suffocated or burned to death was killed by machine gun fire and grenades, except for 10 people who somehow survived the fire and feigned death until the SS had departed. Oh, my God. Yeah. The death toll was 642. 245 women and 207 children in the church and 190 men in the barns. Post-war efforts to bring the SS men to trial were hampered by the difficulty of locating and identifying the Germans, many of whom had been subsequently killed in action and by legal complications. Finally, in 1953, 21 of the 200 SS men were brought to trial. All but one were convicted. Five of them received terms of imprisonment and two were executed. The gutted abandoned village was left unreconstructed. Its ruins serve as a memorial to the victims. A new village with a strikingly modern church was built nearby... And it still has a population of about 2,400 as of 2014. And if you look through the village, it's mostly like you can see burned cars and just Mm -hmm. like fallen. Did you look it up? I'm looking at pictures as you're talking. Yeah. Yeah. Like dilapidated concrete structures and literally just like they literally just like I mean what are you supposed to do you know like they just left it it's basically rubble like it it looks exactly like something awful happened you know that's crazy but honestly good for them especially in Europe where you're constantly looking for more land to build new homes and stuff you should leave some of this stuff I agree and yeah and and I you can see, you know, you, you can go and walk the streets and it's more of like a, you know, a somber place to honor 
like the Auschwitz, victims. I'm sure. Yeah, and what happened? Yeah, but if you also look at the modern church, it does look very. There is a village that looks very similar. It is a. It's the same name, uh, pretty much, and it does look. They basically rebuilt it, but left the remains of what happened. So I do also appreciate that but imagine like and i know this is very somber but like the horror you know what i mean like yeah definitely just like i know we thought like talk about world war ii a lot you know now just as like history and it was so long but it really wasn't that long ago but at all you know but yeah you know especially now we still i still have a family member that was on normandy alive and so you know it wasn't that long ago but it's hard to rationalize and realize those like real horrors you know what I mean yeah and I just because I was following along I just looked up an article from the Guardian from last year August 22nd 2020 Holocaust denial graffitied at site of Nazi massacre in France wow we're also comparing like anti-vaxxers are comparing getting the vaccine to the Holocaust. Marjorie Taylor Greene, one of our government representatives, has made Holocaust references she's had to apologize for. That's the kind of shit that we're dealing with right now. Yeah, not that's, the same. That's why you have to learn from history or you're doomed to repeat it. And it sounds like we're going to head down that track instead. And I'm pretty sure we are probably going to be the Germans this time. So that'll be fun. It's like they're saying like, you know, vaccine cards and stuff or like the tattoos that the Jewish people got. And it's like, that is one of the most horrifically tone deaf, insulting, mm-hmm. offensive saddest things that I think I've ever heard. They don't give a fuck about anybody but themselves. So let's use any possible guilt thing that other people use, quote unquote, and let's try to tie it to ourselves. Yeah. Stop. People, shut the fuck up and get the fucking shot. Jesus. Yeah. And honestly, you're not even being forced to. Like, people are like, I'm going to lose my job. Yeah. Well, cause they're not forcing you to get the vaccine. So the option is you lose your job mm-hmm. and you can go find another one. Exactly. So yeah, I mean, it's not I'm the hearing, Holocaust. <laughs> I'm hearing lots of, uh, y- your privilege is showing. Darling. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Yes. You're not being genocided. Okay. Yeah. You're being asked to protect other people. God. Anyways, you're up. <laughs> Speaking of, okay, this is a uh, Civil War town that was actually taken over afterwards by a black population for a while, which is pretty cool, but then it it got flooded and they had to leave. So uh. here's some bad and good and bad and good. So this is a Cahaba, Alabama. Old Cahaba archaeological site near Selma preserves the ghostly remains of Alabama's first state capital. When the state of Alabama came into being in 1819 as a result of the Creek War of 1813-14 and the Treaty of Fort Jackson, a site in the howling wilderness at the confluence of the Alabama and Cahaba River was selected to be its permanent state capital. While the legislature met temporarily in Huntsville, the town of Cahaba 
was surveyed and Alabama's first state capital was built. In 1820, the functions of state government were fully underway at Cahaba, but the town's distinction did not last long. The land along the rivers was prone to flooding, and mosquitoes from the swamps spread fever, giving the town the reputation of being a dangerous and unhealthy place. As a result, the legislature moved the state capital to Tuscaloosa in 1826. It eventually moved to Montgomery, but the town of Cahaba clung to existence. As cotton planting became big business on the Black Belt Prairie of Alabama, Cahaba reinvented itself as a port on the Alabama River. Paddlewheel steamboats edged up the bluff to take on thousands of bales of cotton. A railroad line was completed to the town in 1859, and the population grew to more than 3,000. Then came the Civil War. Its economy devastated by the Union blockade off the coast, which prevented cotton from being shipped to overseas ports, the town suffered a fatal blow when the Confederate government seized the railroad and removed the iron rails for use elsewhere. In June of 1863, a cotton warehouse in the heart of the town was converted for use as a military prison, which was known locally as Castle Morgan. Famous Southern General John Hunt Morgan was one of the Confederacy's best-known cavalry leaders, and it is thought that the Castle Morgan name was conceived in his honor since he had been born in Alabama in 1825. During the first months of operation, the prison held around 660 men. But as the war dragged on and Union General Ulysses S. Grant ordered an end to prisoner exchanges, the population swelled to more than 3,000. Conditions were horrendous. The old warehouse and surrounding stockade were cramped, and food, medicine, bedding, and clothing were in short supply. Surprisingly, though, the prison's death rate of 2% was among the lowest among the military prisons in either North or South. It is thought that as many as 147 men died at Castle Morgan, which... You know, the population swelled to 3,000 and only 147 men died back then. That's pretty good. Yeah. Sadly, many of the men who survived their time at Cahaba Prison met untimely deaths shortly after being released. The steamboat Sultania was carrying 2,300 newly freed prisoners from Cahaba and Andersonville when she exploded and burned on the Mississippi River on April 27, 1865. As many as 2,000 men died, either in the explosion and fire or in hospital beds following the tragedy. Old Cahaba's most famous ghost story originated during the Civil War years. A couple was walking near the home of Colonel C.C. Pegas when they saw a ball of white light floating in the air ahead of them. The strange apparition moved side to side, but disappeared into the brush when they tried to touch it. It soon returned, however, and followed them along their walk. This strange phenomenon became as the Peggy's ghost to the residents at Old Cahaba. As the colonel had been mortally wounded a short time before at the Battle of Seven Pines, Virginia. By 1860, 64% of the population was African American. In Dallas County, three out of four persons were black. Yet, often the history that is recorded reflects the white minority that owned the newspapers, ran the banks, voted, and was elected to office. The bulk of historical data we have from the town reflects those in power, but that only tells a small part of the story. Prior to the Civil War, the majority of blacks were forced to endure backbreaking labors of fieldwork. A few were freed, but even those could not live in town without a white guardian. And while a few could carry a gun, none were allowed out at night after the market bell rang. 
still, many became such highly skilled craftsmen that they eventually could purchase their freedom. These enslaved laborers became bricklayers, carpenters, blacksmiths, and plasterers. Many learned how to read and write prior to emancipation. Curiously enough, blacks entirely controlled Cahaba's poultry business. After emancipation, records finally began to appear recognizing the civic contributions of Cahaba's black community. Many citizens played prominent roles fighting for hard-won political freedom. Many became landowners, including the Lightnings, Lattimores, Arthurs, and others. Jordan Hatcher, Cahaba's postmaster, was appointed to the Constitutional Convention. Tom Walker was one of Alabama's first state legislatures and became a highly successful lawyer in the District of Columbia, as well as a trustee of Howard University. The town suffered a massive flood in 1865 and in 1866. The state legislature moved the county seat to nearby Selma. Related businesses and population soon followed. By this time, the town became known as the Mecca of the Radical Republican Party, a derogatory nickname given by Selma residents since the deserted, half-destroyed courthouse became a rallying point for freed men attempting to solidify the moderate political gains they had secured during Reconstruction. As the years passed, the town dwindled further. The local black community built a schoolhouse themselves from salvage materials for local children. It sat adjacent to St. Paul's African-American Methodist Episcopal Church, a building which had earlier served as a temporary schoolhouse. Today, the school is one of only three structures still standing at the old Cahaba site. Within 10 years, many of the houses and the churches in the town were dismantled and moved away. St. Luke's Episcopal Church, for example, was moved in 1878 to Martin Station. Jeremiah Harrelson represented Cahaba and Dallas County when elected to the State House, the State Senate, and the United States Congress. He was the only African American in Alabama elected to all three legislative bodies during Reconstruction. Together with the minority of whites, most freedmen rapidly left the declining town. By 1870, the overall population was 431, and the number of blacks was 302. During the Reconstruction era, freedmen organizing in the Republican Party and trying to keep their moderate political gains met regularly at the vacant county courthouse. Freedmen and their families gradually developed vacant town blocks into fields and garden plots, but they soon moved away. Prior to the turn of the 20th century, a freedman purchased most of the town site for $500, He had the abandoned buildings demolished for their building materials and shipped the material by steamboat to Mobile and Selma for use in growing communities. By 1903, most of the buildings were gone. Only a handful of structures survived past 1930. As time passed, the community slowly returned to the wilderness from which it had come. The town was officially unincorporated in 1989, but by then it was already a fabled ghost town of Alabama. As the 20th century progressed, the Alabama Historical Commission took an interest in saving what remained of the famed old town. Property was acquired and the archaeological and historical research projects were launched, leading to an establishment of today's old Cahaba archaeological site. The park covers much of the original downtown area and includes the sites of the old Capitol building, Castle Morgan, the Cochrane Columns, the Barker Slave Quarters, the Methodist Episcopal Church ruins, Still flowering artesian wells, three cemeteries, a welcome center, boat ramp, nature trail, and picnic areas. Yeah, so I thought that was kind of cool that the the freedmen were able to take over for a while, but it sucks that the place just kept flooding and they had to leave. Yeah. 
And I hate to say it, but eventually white people probably would have taken it over because they took everything like thriving black people and just literally, yeah, exactly. Like all the black Wall Streets and yeah, or know. you know, they moved to Selma and then they were like putting it down the whole time. Like fuck those radical Republicans. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. So like this one's not very long, but it was ooky spooky. Like, it's not that spooky. Somebody, this is just neat. La Isla de las Muñecas. And if I mispronounced that, I could have just made up a whole different word or said something that meant, did not mean that. So sorry. Don't mean to offend you. <laughs> so that's supposed to mean Island of the Dolls. And this is in Mexico City, Mexico. An island filled with hundreds of hanging, decomposing, decapitated dolls. So, yeah, there's that. Over... <laughs> Over 50 years ago, Don Julian Santana left his wife and child and moved onto an island on Teshuelo Lake. According to some, a young girl actually drowned in the lake, while most others, including his relatives, say Don Santana merely imagined the drowned girl. Regardless, Santana devoted his life to honoring this lost soul in a unique, fascinating, and unnerving way. He collected and hung up dolls by the hundreds. Eventually, he transformed the entire island into a bizarre and horrifying, for some, doll-infested wonderland. Santana began collecting lost dolls from the canals and the trash near his island home. He is also said to have traded produce he grew to locals for more dolls. Santana did not clean up the dolls or attempt to fix them, but rather put them up with missing eyes, missing limbs, covered in dirt, and generally in whatever ramshackle state he found them in. Even when dolls arrived in good shape, the wind and weather turned them into cracked and distorted versions of their former selves. He also kept his cabin filled with the dolls, which he dressed in headdresses, sunglasses, and other accoutrement. Despite the fact that most people found this aisle frightening, he saw the dolls as beautiful protectors and he welcomes visitors whom he would show around charging a small fee for taking photos. In 2001, he was found drowned in the same area which he believed the little girl had died. Shit, really? Yep. Oh my God. It is located 17 miles south of the center of Mexico City. The best way to get there is to leave from... Impar. Oh my god, I'm so I cannot say that. I'm sorry. It's four hours round trip and costs <clears throat> about 75 US dollars. Keep an eye out for the some wildlife during your boat trip. Commonly seen creatures include pelicans, kingfishers, egrets, and several species of water snakes. But you can visit the island of the dolls in Mexico City, Mexico. And let me tell you, it's creepy. Like you should look cool. I've I've seen pictures. I think this thing is cool. That it they actually show it a little bit in um I think it was Steven Spielberg's show. It only lasted a season. See he can't seem to do fucking TV shows. He can do great movies. But it's <laughs> called The River. That was pretty creepy. And it had a section of it on there. And I thought it was so cool. Yeah. I mean, intention, pure. Execution. <laughs> creepy. <It's> spooky. <laughs> like <laughs> a little unsettling but i mean i think it's neat you know what else is spooky i almost added in there this one is really sad it's it's the six flags in new orleans louisiana got hit by hurricane katrina and it's just it's 
still just there. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. They haven't done Cre- anything with it? A creepy abandoned theme park. Ooh, yeah. I love that. Yeah, you should look pictures of that up because it is. Mm, yeah. And like a lot of mine towns collapse too. Oh, yeah. Like, there's one in Japan that's really creepy looking. Yeah. Yeah. So weird. I can't mm-hmm. believe they haven't done anything with it. Yeah. I mean, I guess, like, what do you, there's, that's just, like, a lot of stuff to move, yeah. you know? Like, what do you, I guess, just, it's just cheaper to leave it there, I guess. I don't know. But I it's hate weird. I my job now because I'm sitting here going, oh, my God, the insurance on this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they probably got a decent payout, but yeah. Guinea. Yeah. You know people have been murdered there. Yeah, dump them in a seat of a ride or something. Yeah. Yeah. But you know people go in there like looking for shit, so I guess somebody would find it. Yeah. Like trespassing all the time. In like most ghost towns, I'm sure. That's true, but God, some of those like Six Flags here is fucking huge. You, I don't know. You could get away with it for a long time. Yeah, you just find the right spot to dump a body. Yeah, and then who knows? Maybe it was just a body from Katrina. Who knows? Like, I mean, decomp though. Yeah. Poking but it holes. It's humid down there. I'm know. better at hiding a body than you are. <laughs> <laughs> you're not thinking this through, Kristen. Sorry, we got to work I'm on get this. Caught right there. Yeah, you're gonna get caught. It's all right. That's what I'm here for. We have. We're we're good if we put our brains together. We could definitely get away with murder. Perfect, because I won't be doing it alone. For legal purposes, this is a joke. <laughs> yes. If you have any ghost towns around you, are they spooky? Where are they? We would like to know. Send it in. You can find this on all of our socials. Everything is the Extra Sisters podcast, except for Twitter, which is at the Extra Sisters. And if you would like to hang out with us on Patreon, October is the best time to do it. So head over to Patreon. It's patreon.com slash the Extra Sisters podcast. Until next time, stay creepy.